Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our last class in this retreat series titled Harmony in Relationships. We've done seven classes so far, and this is the eighth class, ending with eradicating the pollutions of mind, eliminating the ten fetters. I'm going to help you understand what these 10 fetters are in detail and then how to actually eliminate them from the mind because these are the 10 things that are polluting the mind. The Buddha discovered these 10 things and through understanding what they are and how to eliminate them, then the mind can actually move to this enlightened mental state and then your relationships can be harmonious because you won't have these pollutants inhibiting you from having fulfilling personal and professional relationships. So welcome, thank you for joining, whether you're here live or you're watching on the replay, either through Facebook, YouTube, through our podcast or some other mechanism. I appreciate you being here and hopefully those of you guys that are celebrating Christmas or having a very lovely and enjoyable Christmas, welcome to all of you guys. And let's start studying the 10 fetters and helping you to understand more about what these are and how to actually eliminate them. So what a fetter is, is a fetter is like a ball and chain, like a shackle around your ankle that's keeping you trapped in the unenlightened state. As long as these 10 pollutants are in the mind, it's going to inhibit the mind from experiencing this radiance or this brightness of the enlightened mind. So it's very important as you are making your journey towards enlightenment to understand these 10 fetters in detail. We call them fetters or taints or pollutions or defilements. This is what's plaguing the mind and causing it all kinds of struggles and difficulties in the world. As long as these 10 fetters are in the mind, then you're going to find that your personal and professional relationships are struggling. And they're going to continue to struggle until these get eradicated from the mind more and more and the mind gets closer and closer to enlightenment. So once you understand what these are and you can actually apply the antidotes and fix them, then you'll see this brightness and this radiance of the enlightened mind shining through more and more. As you are learning the path to enlightenment and you first start, you're typically learning things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots. You're learning about what is gamma, what is merit. You're developing your meditation practice. And all of these things are the real foundations of the path to enlightenment. And it will take you a number of months, maybe even years to really get your arm around those so that you can deeply understand them and deeply practice them. As you're practicing those teachings more and more closely, you'll start realizing that the mind will start experiencing the jhanas. 
these are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it moves into the first stage of enlightenment. These preliminary phases that the mind experiences referred to as the jhanas. This is like the light bulb flickering and helping you to see that you're putting together your practice of the Eightfold Path really well. And this is the time to more closely look at the 10 fetters, understanding what they are and how to eliminate them. Even early in practice, you can still start to understand the 10 fetters because some of them takes a really long time to actually work towards eliminating them. It's not something that you can learn today and eliminate them tomorrow. Instead, you gradually wear these away over time through your practice. The Eightfold Path and everything else that the Buddha teaches is guiding you towards the elimination of these 10 fetters. And as you're putting together the Eightfold Path and practicing that closer and closer, some of these fetters are actually being eliminated and starting to be worn away through the practice of the Eightfold Path. And that's why you start experiencing those jhanas. But as you're experiencing those jhanas and you start seeing these glimpses more and more of this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that is enlightenment starting to shine through, this is the time to really focus in on the 10 fetters, understanding what they are and starting to work towards eliminating them. There's nothing wrong with actually learning them early in practice and keeping them in mind and knowing what they are so that you can then work to eliminate them as you're progressing in your path. But early on, if you haven't quite gotten your arms around the full path and all the connected teachings, then it's best to really focus on that. And then as you're starting to experience these jhanas, this is the time to really start focusing in on the 10 fetters. There's the lower fetters, which are here, personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior and observances, sensual desire and ill will. I'm going to talk about each one of these in detail and help you understand what the remedy is for these. And then there's the higher fetters. These are desire for form, desire for formless, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. These make up what's called the higher fetters. And then depending on how you're eliminating these, the mind will move from those jhanas, those preliminary phases that I talked about, there's four of those, and it will make its way into the first stage of enlightenment by eliminating the first three fetters. The first three fetters are personal existence view, doubt, and wrong behavior and observances. These are going to help you to move into the first stage of enlightenment that we refer to as a stream enter. So once these three fetters are eliminated from the mind, then an individual is in the first stage of enlightenment. The mind is still experiencing discontentedness at this point, but it's been significantly diminished. And once the mind reaches this first stage of enlightenment as a stream enter, it won't regress backwards from there. It'll be firmly in the first stage of enlightenment. Whereas the mind is practicing the Eightfold Path and moving into the jhanas, if for some reason somebody were to give up or their practice would become complacent, their mind can actually regress. But once the mind is in this first stage of enlightenment, it won't regress from there. And then once the mind is in the first stage of enlightenment and an individual continues to practice, they've already eliminated the first three fetters and then they've greatly thinned or reduced fetter four and five, which is central desire and ill will. We're going to be talking about these as we go in today's class. And then once the lower fetters are completely eliminated, meaning there are no more arising of personal existence view, doubt, 
wrong behavior and observances, sensual desire and ill will, this is where the mind now moves into the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner. And here, discontentedness is significantly diminished where you might only be experiencing discontentedness about once every three months, once every six months. It's not very frequent and the intensity of the discontentedness is very insignificant. And oftentimes, practitioner can get somewhat complacent at this stage of enlightenment, very much like beings who are reborn into the heavenly realm that are complacent in the heavenly realm because they're only experiencing pleasant feelings. Beings in the third stage of enlightenment can also oftentimes become somewhat complacent because they're very infrequently experiencing discontentedness and it's not very intense and it can be pretty quickly eradicated. But the mind is not yet enlightened when it's in this third stage of enlightenment because it's still experiencing some discontentedness. Even if that's just a little bit of ickiness or uncomfortableness or dissatisfaction at one point or another, the mind is still not yet enlightened. It's not until somebody eliminates all the lower fetters and all the higher fetters, all 10, that now the mind moves into the fourth stage of enlightenment, referred to as an arahant. This is an individual who actually is enlightened. The mind will no longer experience any discontent feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure or unsatisfactoriness is not experienced in the enlightened mind. The mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, experiencing a high degree of focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. And the reason why this is occurring is because this individual has eradicated the pollutions of mind. As long as these pollutions are in the mind, it's going to hinder it from being able to experience this peace and this joy and this focus, this clarity, this concentration and deep memory because this pollution is hindering the mind from experiencing that brightness or that radiance. The mind is still in the darkness experiencing the pollution of mind and it's not until that is eliminated from the mind that now the qualities of the enlightened mind can shine through. So as we go today, I'm going to be sharing each of these fetters with you to help you understand these pollutions of mind so that then once you understand what they are, you can be observant when they're arising and you can see the complications and difficulties that they're causing and then you'll know the solution of how to eliminate them. But at any time, you can always reach out for help. You can consult the resources that I share like books and classes and reach out for personal guidance and things like this. But if this is the first time that you've learned the 10 fetters, it's good to understand them, but don't feel like this is the only time you're ever gonna learn them because you're gonna need to come back and revisit them multiple times as you plot your journey to enlightenment. These stages of enlightenment and the fetters that need to be eliminated on your journey to enlightenment, these are for your personal growth. This isn't something that you would kind of call up your mom and say, hey mom, guess what? I made it to the first stage of enlightenment. Aren't you so proud of me? Or go out you know, put on your Facebook page that you're in the second stage of enlightenment. These are for your personal development. You don't get any kind of badge to wear around or any kind of emblem or anything like that. Instead, it's helping you to plot your course and plot your plans going forward so that as you see these fetters arising and causing complications in your life, you know that they're there and then you will know how to eradicate them. And as you're having challenges with that, 
again, you can reach out to your teacher or consult resources in order to help you better understand how to eliminate these. So this is for your personal development. It may be something that you only really talk about with your teacher. You might talk to your teacher and say, hey, I think I've eliminated personal existence view, but I'm not sure. Could you help me discern this or figure this out? Or I feel like I've eliminated central desire or ill will. Is there some suggestion that you can provide me to help me determine if I've actually eliminated these or not, or if I still need to do more work on that? So these are ways to plot your personal journey to enlightenment. The first fetter is called personal existence view. This is one that we actually talked about last week as part of our class. And I went through it in detail because this particular fetter or personal existence view is one that most people have a bit of a challenge to really understand because it's vastly different than what we've been taught our whole life. And as the mind has accumulated certain conditioning and certain experiences that it's had, it's accumulated more and more of this pollution of personal existence view. I talked about it in detail in one particular class because it usually needs a lot more focus to be able to understand it and understand what it is and how to eradicate it. So if you haven't seen that class yet, I suggest that you go back to either the video in Facebook or YouTube, or you go to the podcast and learn what personal existence view is in detail in the solutions of how to eradicate it. Essentially what this fetter is or this pollution of mind is, is how the mind falsely or mistakenly believes that the physical body or the mind is the self meaning there's a certain self-image that the unenlightened mind attaches to, it clings to with the physical body. There's a certain self-image that it's projecting in the world, or there's certain self-identity in the mind. So as long as this self-image and self-identity is being clung to in the mind, thinking that this is who you are as a person, you're going to experience difficulties when you hear certain agreeable or disagreeable things or you experience certain agreeable or disagreeable things about the physical body. So as you eradicate this pollution, you'll see that the mind will become more peaceful and more joyful because no longer is it associating with this self-image and self-identity as being who you are. So I talked about this in detail last week and provided you the solutions of how to actually eradicate this from the mind. So you can reference that in the resources that I share on the YouTube channel and Facebook and on the podcast. So let's move into discussing the second fetter, which is doubt. This is having doubt about the teachings and the ability of them to lead you or guide you to the attainment of enlightenment. This is where the mind isn't sure. It's skeptical about what these teachings are and whether or not they can actually lead to enlightenment or not. Typically, somebody who's first coming into the path to enlightenment and studying the Buddhist teachings will have doubt. And this doubt can actually be a real healthy doubt. You can harness it to your benefit. You can look at it like, okay, yes, I do doubt these teachings. I don't know whether they're true or not. I am skeptical whether this enlightened mental state really exist and whether it's possible to attain it. I'm skeptical perhaps whether the Buddha was actually alive and whether he existed and whether he truly got to enlightenment. I'm skeptical about my ability to attain enlightenment. You might be skeptical about all these things or having doubt. And what you can do is you can train the mind to be now inquisitive to understanding the teachings in order to 
deeply investigate them. And then as you're investigating the teachings and you're seeing the improvement to the condition of the mind where it is becoming more peaceful, it is becoming more joyful, it is becoming more focused and concentrated, you're noticing more stability and steadiness in the mind. Then eventually you get to the point where you've eradicated doubt about the teachings because you see that through your investigation of them and you applying them in practice, that it is improving the condition of the mind. The way that you do this is not through belief. Belief won't actually lead to the elimination of doubt and it won't lead to attainment of enlightenment. The way that you get to enlightenment is through cultivating wisdom and then applying that wisdom in daily life in order to eradicate the pollutions of the mind. The wisdom that you accumulate actually is working to eliminate one of the fetters. It's actually the 10th fetter. It's called ignorance. And we'll talk about that when we get to that one. But in order to eliminate this doubt about the teachings and the ability of them to attain enlightenment, you need to develop this confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community that you're part of, your teacher, and your own ability to attain enlightenment. The way that you gain this confidence is through investigating the teachings, through learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. When you're learning, this is the content that you're taking in through books or audiobooks, through classes, through meeting with your teacher, through videos and podcasts and things like this. This is your learning of the teachings. This is where you're investigating the teachings. You're examining them. Then you start reflecting on the teachings. And as you're reflecting on the teachings, you independently verify them. You're not believing what you've learned. Instead, you're independently verifying the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, as the Buddha is explaining the teachings of the five precepts and all these other aspects of his teachings, you can independently verify that these teachings are actually true. And now as you move those teachings into practice and you start practicing these, you will see the condition of the mind gradually improving and the condition of your life, your relationships personally and professionally will become more fulfilling and you'll become more at ease when you're in social situations and when you're at home, you won't be lonely and missing people and bored and you won't be shy and all these other discontent feelings that you once experienced because you know what used to rise anger in the mind or sadness or misery or despair or some of these other discontent feelings, you know what that feels like. And as you get involved in investigating the teachings, independently verifying them to see that they're the truth, and then you're practicing them and implementing them to transform the condition of the mind, you'll see that those discontent feelings will gradually diminish and eventually get to the point where they're eliminated. So you'll know something that once would arise so much anger in your mind, now the mind is completely peaceful in that situation. There's no more anger that arises. And this is how you ultimately eliminate doubt about the teachings. And you develop this confidence in the Buddha because you see that he lived 2,500 years ago and the teachings that he shared are directly applicable to your life today and they're benefiting the mind. And you're seeing the improvement to the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. So here you'll gain this confidence of the Buddha. You'll gain this confidence in his teachings that have been preserved all these years. You'll gain this confidence in the community of practitioners that you're part of because you see them encouraging you and helping you along the path. You'll gain this 
confidence in your teacher, the person who's actually been sharing resources with you and sharing teachings with you, and you've been seeking guidance in that person, you'll have more and more confidence in that teacher that they're able to guide you to enlightenment. And maybe you'll even gain confidence that your teacher is actually enlightened. And then you'll gain confidence in your own ability to progress on this path and get to enlightenment because you've seen significant progress along the path as you've been implementing the teachings more and more. So this is how you work to eliminate doubt is through investigating and learning the teachings, independently verifying them through your reflection, and then practicing them as you're removing more and more pollution from the mind and you see these glimpses and these qualities of enlightenment starting to shine through, then you'll know you're headed in the right direction and you'll ultimately get to a point where you have no doubt about the teachings whatsoever and their ability to lead you to enlightenment. You have nothing but confidence in the Buddha, the teachings, the community, your teacher, and your ability to attain enlightenment. But that doesn't come from blind belief or blind faith. It comes from doing the work. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. You can put this into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly if you like. Does that appear that there are any questions at the time, sir? Okay. What I'm going to be doing is very different than what I've done in other classes, which after each individual fetter, I'll be pausing for questions because each of these fetters are so different from each other that in the past in certain classes I might teach you know for 20 30 40 minutes before I open up for questions but here what I'm going to be doing is at the end of discussing each individual fetter I'm going to be pausing for questions so if you guys have questions on any of these individual fetters be sure to ask those at the time that we're talking about that specific fetter so that then when we move on to the next one and talk about something that's very different then we can answer questions on that fetter as well so now we'll move on to the third fetter, which is wrong behavior and observances. This is where the mind is unknowing in practicing this unwholesome moral conduct. It's the mind actually believing in rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and that this is the way that one would attain enlightenment. So if the mind is practicing, for example, wrong speech or wrong action or wrong livelihood. This is the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path. There, if somebody is being harsh or aggressive or they're being hateful or they're speaking at the wrong time or they're lying, they're slandering, they're having frivolous speech, speaking idle chatter, just random chit chat. This is all talked about in the Eightfold Path under right speech, for example. An individual who has wrong behavior is going to be doing these types of things. And as part of right action, the Buddha talks about one who might be killing or stealing or having sexual misconduct. And then as part of right livelihood, the Buddha talks about these five trades that are causing harm and that if we base our livelihood on these individual trades, then we're causing harm in the world and now we're sustaining our life through harming other beings. So an individual who has wrong behavior is going to actually be doing these types of things. And then if they have 
wrong observances, they're going to think that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is going to lead to some improvement and actually potentially lead to enlightenment or some other beneficial outcome. So what you're doing in order to eradicate this particular pollution is in order to eliminate wrong behavior, uh, an individual will need to have a well-developed practice of the Eightfold Path as part of the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The Buddha speaks very clearly of what those things are. So if you look at the teachings that I've shared around the Eightfold Path on right speech, right action, right livelihood, an individual would need to purify their speech, actions, and livelihood in order to eliminate the pollution of wrong behavior. And this will help bring some more clarity to the mind because with the moral conduct section, the Buddha is explaining to you the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect and action and result as he does throughout all of his teachings. So as you improve your moral conduct and the way that you're functioning in the world through your decisions, you're putting out less and less harm in the world. So less and less harm is coming back to you and you'll be very clear on what that moral conduct is. And now because you're putting less harm out into the world, less harm is coming back to you. So now your mind can gain a certain level of peacefulness and joy because you're not having to deal with all the constant struggles and difficulties of problematic situations because of certain decisions that you've made. So it's a deep understanding and practice of the Eightfold Path that is eliminating wrong behavior. It's not just the wisdom or the intellectual learning of the Eightfold Path, but it's actually putting it into practice to where you are practicing right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the wrong observances part is the elimination that belief of rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship will help you to attain enlightenment. So even in Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of different temples or teachers or various places that you can go where there are rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. There might be sprinkling of water, tying strings on your wrist or pouring out water. There might be certain chants that are thought to invoke certain beneficial powers or mystical, magical, superstitious, and auspicious things. But the Buddha didn't teach any of these things. These are things that were actually added to his teachings after he died. They're not in his original source teachings. When you look at the words of the Buddha and you base your practice on the words of the Buddha, you can see what did he teach and what he didn't teach. And he taught that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship don't actually lead to enlightenment in an improved condition of mind. So as you are learning with the words of the Buddha, you can understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship aren't going to lead to some benefit. And the way that you can come to that conclusion even now is that if you understand the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance, or this unknowing of true reality, then you might understand that the whole reason why craving and anger exist in the mind is because of ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, this lack of wisdom. And Wisdom is talked about in the Buddhist teachings quite a bit because in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to cultivate wisdom about the path to enlightenment and what's going on in the mind so that you can eradicate it. So the only reason why craving and anger exist in the unenlightened mind is because the mind has this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. It doesn't realize that 
It's craving that is causing the discontent feelings. In the unenlightened state, until we have that breakthrough to establish right view, we typically will blame other people or will blame the situation for causing us discontent feelings when in reality we're causing it ourselves, and this is because of a lack of wisdom and if you understand dependent origination which somebody by the time they get to the first stage of enlightenment would understand dependent origination then you understand that it's ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that is at the top of this chain that's leading all the way to discontentedness and continuous rebirth and the cycle of rebirth so since you start to understand that it's this unknowing of true reality or the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand is the real problem then the antidote to that is wisdom that's what transforms the mind then you can understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship doesn't lead to wisdom. Sprinkling water on you, tying a string around your wrist, doing some type of ceremony or something like this, it doesn't actually lead to wisdom about craving and anger. It doesn't lead to wisdom about moral conduct. It doesn't lead to wisdom about mental discipline. It doesn't lead to wisdom about the natural law of karma. So sprinkling water or tying a string around your wrist or any of these other rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship that are out there, it's not leading to enlightenment. Instead, it's actually hindering a person's enlightenment. As long as the mind is believing that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship is leading to an improved result in life, then the mind is still in this ignorance. It's still in this delusion. It's still having confusion. It's still having misunderstanding about what needs to transpire in order to get to enlightenment. What needs to transpire is this learning, this reflecting to independently verify the teachings, and this practice. And that's what's eradicating the pollutions of mind. If you understand what the real problem is, is these 10 pollutions or these 10 fetters, those don't get eradicated through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. So an individual, by the time they get to the first stage of enlightenment, will have eliminated the belief that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship would lead to any kind of beneficial results in their life. So they would have purged that from their life practice and no longer thinking in that way. So let me pause and see what questions you guys have about wrong behavior and observances. Yes, sir. This is kind of a sort of a two-part question. Can this doubt that you taught about previously, can this actually help someone to eliminate this matter of wrong behavior and observances if they are practicing these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and seeing that that's not what's leading to enlightenment? Can this in some way like help them having that doubt about maybe rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, can that help them see that that's not what's going to lead to enlightenment? If somebody's in a community where there's rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship happening, and they have doubt about that rite, ritual, ceremony, and worship, and it ultimately leads them to finding another community where they're not doing rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship, and they're actually sharing the true teachings of the Buddha, then in that situation, having doubt about the wrong teachings that are being shared, yeah, that's helping them. But here, remember, this is the path that the Buddha is explaining is that doubt about his true teachings is what's going to hinder somebody from getting to enlightenment. Once you've learned and you're starting to 
encounter the true teachings, if you have doubt about them, it will hinder your ability to make progress and get to this first stage of enlightenment. But what I was sharing is that typically somebody coming into the path to enlightenment and joining a new community, even a community that has the true teachings, there's going to be a certain amount of doubt. And this can actually be harnessed. It can create a inquisitive mind where now the mind is inquisitive to actually deeply investigate and examine the teachings because they have doubt. But if somebody has doubt and they turn away without having truly investigated what's going on, this is where it becomes an obstacle. In a situation where someone's in a community that is practicing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, they have doubt about those, they investigate those, they do those rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship for a period of time, and then they realize like, yeah, they're not working the way that these people are saying they're working. That's actually helping them. But the doubt that we're talking about here is about the true teachings that the Buddha shared during his lifetime. Okay, yes, I understand. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's look at the fourth fetter because someone having eliminated the first three fetters would be in the first stage of enlightenment. But once somebody is starting to thin fetter four and five, now the mind moves into the second stage of enlightenment. And once four and five are eliminated, the mind moves into the third stage of enlightenment, which is called non-returner. So let's talk about the fourth fetter, which is called sensual desire. This is where the mind has desire for pleasure through the six sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, the body, and the mind. Typically, when you're taught about the senses, you're usually taught about, in science, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and body. But in the Buddhist teachings, the mind is a sixth sense. And we call these the six sense bases in the central desire because the mind is longing and yearning through these six senses for pleasure. It wants these pleasant feelings and it thinks that if it gets this agreeable contact through the six sense bases that it will get these pleasant feelings and somehow that will be fulfilling and lasting. But then ultimately that ends up allowing the mind to then experience painful feelings. So as long as the mind is chasing this happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria through the six sense bases based on some condition, since that condition is impermanent, it now moves from those temporary pleasant feelings to now experiencing these painful feelings. And the mind's going up and down and up and down and up and down based on this central desire. So let me give you some examples. So the mind will have this desire through the eyes to have agreeable contact and see agreeable things. Maybe the mind wants to see handsome men or beautiful women or beautiful artwork or a beautiful car, or a beautiful house or all these different things, beautiful clothing, beautiful food, right? It's longing through the eyes for this agreeable contact. And maybe it gets these happy feelings or excited feelings, but those are only temporary because it's basing its inner feelings on this agreeable contact through the eyes. And now it's only a matter of time due to the universal truth of impermanence that it now experiences through the eyes some disagreeable contact. Maybe 
where you once had happy feelings because you bought this brand new car and this shiny sports car and there's these happy feelings because of seeing this brand new red shiny sports car now when you come out of the store and you see this scratch on the car now the mind having craved those pleasant feelings by seeing the shiny sports car now it has this contact through the eyes which is disagreeable which is the scratch across the car and now the mind experiences these painful feelings because it based its inner feelings on agreeable contact through the eyes and it was experiencing those pleasant feelings they were only temporary because it's only a matter of time before some disagreeable contact comes through the eyes and this is the same thing through the ears and each one of these other sense bases you might have certain pleasurable music that you listen to and you really enjoy that music and when you hear it you get so excited but then it's only a matter of time before someone pulls up to you in a car that has music that is disagreeable to you or you're at home and somebody in the next apartment or the next condo or the next house or somebody drives by your house with music playing that you don't like and this is disagreeable to the mind and now the mind gets these painful feelings like anger or sadness or frustration. We could go through each one of these sense bases because it's the forms that the eyes see, it's the sounds that the ears hear, it's the odors that the nose experiences, it's the flavor that the tongue experiences and tastes, it's the physical objects that come in contact with the body, and then there are certain mental objects or thoughts or things that the mind is longing for. If you've ever been somewhere thinking about the past and pleasurable things that happened in the past and your mind starts longing and yearning for those pleasant things and then you feel disgruntled or angry about what you're experiencing now because you're no longer experiencing those things from the past. Or the mind might be longing and yearning for something in the future and it's wanting these pleasant feelings out of something in the future. And then when you experience that thing, it didn't meet your expectations and now you're feeling painful feelings. You're feeling disgruntled or angry because this thing didn't meet your expectations. This is how central desire puts the mind in this condition where it's longing through these sense bases for agreeable contact through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And if it gets that, it gets pleasant feelings. And if it doesn't get that, then it gets painful feelings. This is the mind craving permanence, wanting the objects of its affection and chasing after the objects of its affection. So you need to train the mind to no longer do this because even when the mind's enlightened, you're still going to be taking in certain content through the sense bases. But as long as there's craving in there, as long as there's this central desire, then there's going to be certain agreeable contact and disagreeable contact. And the mind's going to go up and down and up and down. So you're trying to gain this control or this discipline of the mind where you can train it to no longer do this. And you use breathing mindfulness meditation as a primary, steady, consistent training to be able to train the mind to no longer do this. 
The breathing mindfulness meditation is done two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, and you need to build up to that. Typically, people don't start with that. You might start with once a day for five or 10 minutes or something like that, but gradually building up to two or three times per day for 30 minutes or more is where you'll see the most benefit. And this is a primary training that you do on a consistent basis on an ongoing basis. You gradually train the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation to focus on the breath. And when it's not on the breath and the mind moves off the breath, you cut that off, let it go, and you pull it back. And then the mind stays on the breath for a period of time. And then it moves off the breath. You observe that it's doing that. You cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. And then more and more, what you're gaining is this discipline or this control of the mind. You're not actually trying to eliminate the thoughts, but instead what you're doing is you're getting this discipline to be able to control the mind and restrain it. So that now in daily life with mindfulness or awareness of mind, as you observe the mind having craving where it's longing through the sense bases for pleasant feelings, now you can restrain the mind, you can pull it back, you can cut off and let go of that craving rather than allow it to chase after the objects of its affection. So where in the past, when you might be in the mall, you might be walking in the mall and you see a certain object, maybe a new pair of shoes or a new purse or some new clothes or some new technical gadget that you, the mind wants, it's craving, it's longing. You might be longing for that thing and where you see the mind longing and yearning for it, you can then cut that off, let it go and come back and restrain the mind. But you wouldn't be able to do that if you weren't practicing breathing mindfulness meditation on a consistent ongoing basis. So by developing your mind through breathing mindfulness meditation to arise mindfulness or awareness of mind, specifically the four foundations of mindfulness, developing that in meditation and then practicing that in daily life, along with a rising concentration, being able to focus on a single object and practice singleness of mind, now you'll have control and discipline over the mind that where you see central desire arising, you can cut that off and let it go. And you use mindfulness to guard the mind. It's watching over the mind so that as you see cravings arising, you can cut that off and let it go and restrain the mind. Or as you see discontentedness arising as just a bodily sensation, you can cut that off and let it go. I've taught other classes about the four foundations of mindfulness, and you can get into detail to understand what these four foundations are. It's the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. And when you learn what these four foundations of mindfulness are, and you're aware of all four of them, now you can gain real close discipline, real close control over the mind so that now when you observe craving arising, you can cut it off and let it go until you get to the point where you've done this so many times that there's no longer craving or desire in the mind. You can get to the point where this mental longing and strong eagerness has been eliminated from the mind and there's no more arising of discontentedness in the mind because you've eliminated central desire. The mind is no longer longing through these sense bases for agreeable contact. Instead, 
of looking at it as agreeable and disagreeable contact, by the time you get to enlightenment, it'll just be contact. So it'll just be a form that you see. It'll just be sound. It'll just be an odor. It'll just be a flavor uh, that you taste. It'll just be some physical object in the body that's touching the body. And it'll be just some thought in the mind rather than agreeable or disagreeable. So where in the past, if you walk down the street and somebody bumped into you, you might have gotten angry or hostile or aggressive, where now you'll just look at that as an impermanent situation. It's not agreeable or disagreeable. It's just physical contact. And of course, you just continue walking. No big deal. Where before, with that personal existence view, you might have thought somebody was disrespecting you. Maybe you're ready to fight or you give a ugly face for somebody bumping into you. Where as the mind lets go of personal existence view and central desire, you just look at it as an impermanent situation and you just move on with your day. Or if you have other situations where maybe in the past somebody would walk by with an amazing smelling cologne or perfume and be like, oh my goodness, that smells so great. I just want to be with that person. They excite the senses. They excite the mind. Where then when you walk past a foul odor, like a sewer or something like this, you might have gotten very disgruntled and your face became very disgruntled or angry because of this smell. But more and more, as you eliminate sensual desire, you'll know that these things are all impermanent and the mind won't chase after them and want these agreeable contacts and it won't be repulsed by disagreeable contact. The agreeable and disagreeable no longer exist in the enlightened mind because their craving of wanting one thing and not wanting something else has been eliminated. Instead, the mind just sees everything that it's experiencing as an impermanent situation. And breathing mindfulness meditation, developing mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, and cutting off and letting go in the moment during daily life is what's going to help eliminate these cravings, desires, attachments, along with generosity. Generosity is the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any situation giving your time, effort, energy, and resources. This is sharing things because a mind with central desire tends to become very selfish. It holds on to things, wanting to hold on to things permanently. When you acquire certain things that you agree with and that you want, the mind might tend to hold on to these things. So by giving and sharing and practicing generosity, this allows the mind to be trained to let go and no longer hold on to things and wanting them to be permanent. Instead, through this regular giving and sharing of your time, effort, energy, and resources, the mind gradually is trained to let go along with the meditation. These are gradual trainings that the mind does. You can't just give and share once and then the mind is going to magically have eliminated craving, desire, attachment in the central desire. Instead, it's consistent ongoing training throughout your day and throughout your weeks, throughout your months and years where you're gradually practicing generosity, you're gradually practicing meditation and the mind is trained to let go and no longer long and yearn through these sense bases for pleasant feelings. So therefore, it won't experience painful feelings either. You'll see this gradual diminishing of discontentedness as your mind is gradually being trained to let go of craving, desire, attachment, or this sensual desire. So let me see if there's questions on this particular fetter before we move on to the next one.
Um, yes, sir. Craving for comfort of the physical body. I can only think that this does count as sensual desire. And how do we eliminate this? Yeah, so if somebody's craving for permanent comfort of the body, this is because the mind has sensual desire and it's not understanding the universal truth of impermanence, that it's not possible for this physical body to be permanently comfortable. But that doesn't mean you don't try to do things that would create comfort in the body, but you realize that it's not always going to be comforted. So when there's craving and yearning and wanting this physical body to be permanently comfortable, then when it's not comfortable, that's when it becomes sad or angered or frustrated or irritated. So then also on the other side, if you weren't attending to the physical body at all and you were putting it in situations where it's regularly experiencing pain and you're maybe damaging the physical body like your knee or your hip or your ankles or things like this or your back, this wouldn't be wise either because now there's going to be long-term pain in the body. So instead, you find this middle way and you're able to do that more and more readily with the things that I've suggested here, which is breathing mindfulness, meditation, generosity, watching over the mind with mindfulness and cutting off and letting go anytime the mind is longing and yearning for something is you find this middle way where maybe you buy something for the body that feels comfortable like a fabric and that's a nice shirt and wow it feels good nice but you know that that shirt is impermanent and you know that this comfort that it's experiencing is impermanent or you might buy a meditation cushion in order to make meditation more comfortable but you know that that's impermanent you're not always going to be able to use that meditation cushion other things like this so what you do is you try to attend to the physical body and provide it things that is going to be comfortable all the while understanding impermanence that it's not possible for the body to be permanently comfortable and wherever you see that there's a craving that arises in the mind for permanent comfort you cut that off and let it go helping the mind to realize that it can't be permanently comfortable and you bring it back to the middle way and realize, yeah, sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. So let me give you an example. So, you know, I ride a motorbike here in Chiang Mai and this is a really easy way to get around because you can go through traffic, you can go between cars, it's easy to park in front of stores, it doesn't require much expense. So I tend to ride the motorbike around and depending on the length of the journey, you know, your butt can be hurting a little bit as you're traveling. But as you're traveling, you know in your mind like, okay, this is impermanent. Yeah, sure, the, the butt hurts a little bit, but it's not going to be hurting permanently. And maybe when I get to a stoplight, I might shift a little bit to try to make it more comfortable or I might stand up with my two feet. But ultimately in that situation when the butt is hurting, you're not discontent, you're not irritated, you're not angry, you're not frustrated, you're not annoyed, you just know that this is part of the human experience, that there's going to be occasional situations where the body's going to be uncomfortable. Understood. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to the fifth fetter, which is ill will. And remember, with this fifth fetter, the person who's in the second stage of enlightenment as a once returner will have thinned this. A person who's in the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner will have eliminated this fetter. 
What this fetter is called is ill will. This is the anger, hatred, ill will. This is the hostility, the aggression, the resentment, the frustration, irritation, the annoyance, the bitterness, even the slightest little dislike. This is coming from this particular fetter. There's the extremes of this, which is the anger, the hatred, the aggression, the bitterness, but then there's lesser versions of this as it's diminishing more and more and more. There's that slight dislike where you just don't like that person, right? Um, and the mind's just a little bit irritated or annoyed in certain situations. So you might not say you hate somebody, right? You might not feel like you're hostile or aggressive or bitter towards anybody. Maybe at other times in your life when you weren't on this path and you weren't training the mind, maybe you would say that that was what you experienced. But maybe now there's just this little bit of dislike or this little annoyance. It's still coming from this same fetter or the same pollution or the same defilement. And this is going to hinder you from having harmonious relationships. It's going to be very challenging to have harmonious personal professional relationships as long as this fetter of ill will is in the mind to any degree. Of course, the extreme, it's going to be very hard to be able to have rewarding and fulfilling relationships. But even at the very minimal amount of this in there, it's still going to be very challenging because there's going to be certain people that you don't associate well with because there's that dislike in the mind. So you would like to uproot this ill will. You would like to eliminate it. The Buddha describes all these fetters as obliterating them, destroying them. Essentially, what you're doing is uprooting these fetters out of the mind and now you're bringing in the wholesome qualities that are going to replace that. So the opposite of ill will is loving kindness. Loving kindness is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. That you have this genuine interest in seeing them be well, be peaceful. It's active goodwill towards all beings. And that's what will replace this anger, hatred, ill will, the hostility, the bitterness, and the aggression. And the way that you do this is through practicing loving kindness meditation. In those two to three meditation sessions per day, at least one of them should be loving kindness meditation. As long as you have this fetter of ill will, even that slight little dislike in the mind, you should still be doing loving kindness meditation so you can obliterate ill will at the stump. You can uproot it and get it out of there. So you're practicing this loving kindness meditation where what I've taught is doing these affirmations on the out breath. May I be peaceful. May I be safe. May I be well. May I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. And then you expand these rings where you include people that you currently have loving kindness for and people who you don't have loving kindness for, that you customize this meditation so that you can essentially rewire the mind where before maybe you thought negatively and you had dislike or ill will towards certain people. But now through training the mind in this loving kindness meditation, you're rewiring the mind in order to now have nothing but goodwill this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing these beings be well, where 
you're saying, may mom be peaceful, may mom be safe, may mom be well, may mom be free of discontentedness in the suffering it causes, or your life partner, or your children, your neighbors, your co-workers, people you haven't even met yet. There's different examples that I give as I teach about how you can structure this meditation. And in the book series that I share, if you look in volume one, chapter 11, you'll see how to do loving kindness meditation there. So on a regular, consistent basis, you're using loving kindness meditation to rewire the mind and have these positive thoughts towards all beings. And now when you go out into the world, you can practice loving kindness in your daily life through your intentions, your speech, and your actions, where you can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. When you have ill will in the mind, you're going to find it challenging to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. But as you get rid of this more and more and more by practicing loving kindness meditation. Now you can arise this loving kindness in the mind more and more and more where it's now permeating in the mind. And now through your intention, speech and actions on a daily basis, you can be polite, kind, friendly and respectful. So in the past where you might have put out this hostility and this bitterness, this aggression, this resentment or frustration through your intention, speech and actions. And that was then what was coming back to you through all the relationships that you were in now by putting out more and more polite kind friendly and respectfulness in your intention speech and actions that is what will come back to you and it's going to take time for you to gradually transform your mind and it's going to take time for you to gradually transform your relationships because if you're in certain relationships now where you have been hostile or aggressive or bitter or resentful those people have gotten used to you functioning that way. So now, even though you're working to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, you still have the results of your previous decisions that are gonna end up coming back to you. These people are gonna continue to treat you in the way that you treated them in the past. So there's gonna be some relationships on this path to enlightenment that you choose to end and you choose to move on from and you choose to no longer associate with that person because perhaps it's a relationship that you realize that it's going to be too difficult for you to resolve and it's best for you to just move on. Then there's going to be certain relationships in your life that you currently have that you're going to work on and that you're going to continue to apply effort to improve. And by you improving your condition of your mind and them improving the condition of their mind, now this relationship can get on better and better footing and more solid. And then there's going to be new relationships that you create as part of this path to enlightenment that those individuals you only have treated polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. So you've let go of certain relationships that you know it's going to be too much of a struggle to resolve. You're resolving the current relationships that you have and you and that person perhaps are working through these challenges and working on your own pollutions of mind. And then you're forging new relationships that are going to continue forward in the future. And now through you practicing loving kindness meditation to kind of fill up the mind with this active goodwill, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, 
and now you're practicing it through your intention, speech, and your actions, your improved relationships in your new relationships, now you're functioning among wholesome friends, wholesome companions, and wholesome comrades where you're only ever practicing loving kindness through your intention, speech, and actions. And this cleans up your relationships. It cleans up your life because you've cleaned up your mind. Oftentimes in the unenlightened state, what we do is we think the problems we're experiencing is because of other people. And we try to fix other people and try to get them to do things our way. And it never works. And oftentimes with this ill will, when people don't do things the way we want, we will push them away. This is called aversion. In this aversion, pushing them away, the unenlightened mind thinks that it's solving the problem. Because this person isn't doing what you want, you think that if you push them out of the way, this solves a problem. But then you have another relationship. You still have ill will in the mind. There's still this anger, this aggression, this frustration, this irritation. And then that relationship gets damaged as well. And then you push that relationship away. And the reason why is because the unenlightened mind is misunderstanding what the real problem is. It thinks that the problem is outside of itself. When in reality, the true problem is inside the mind, all these different pollutions, including ill will, is hindering the mind from having harmonious relationships. So as you improve the condition of your mind by arising this loving kindness and getting rid of the ill will, now you can function in all your relationships with this loving kindness through your intentions, your speech, and your actions. And now you'll find that your relationships will really blossom and they can be more fulfilling because you're no longer blaming other people for the feelings that you experience and you're no longer pushing people out of your life because you think they're the problem. Instead, you're focusing on what the true problem is, which is your own pollutions of mind. And where you see that this ill will is arising in the mind, you cut it off and let it go. You choose to no longer allow the mind to go down that path. Because before you have the wisdom of these teachings, when something happens that you disagree with, the mind very easily goes down this path of anger, of hostility, of hatred, of ill will, of bitterness and aggression. And this is a well-worn path that the mind easily goes down but you know where that leads. It leads to more hostility, more aggression, pushing people away, people's feelings get hurt, and then essentially you become very lonely because you aren't able to associate with all people. Instead, you just keep pushing people away because of this well-worn path of anger or frustration, irritation, even the slightest little dislike. So what you're doing with loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions, and cutting off any time you see any anger or frustration or irritation arise, is you're forging this new path. And you're choosing that when something happens that you disagree with, you're not choosing to go down this path of anger anymore. You're choosing to arise loving kindness and this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then more and more as you do this, 
this old path of anger gets overgrown, there's more brush, there's more branches, there's more sticker bushes. The mind won't be interested in going down that path anymore because it's been overgrown. And now the mind more and more readily goes down this path that you now created where you've opened up this new path of loving kindness and you've rewired the mind essentially that you understand that you're not going to agree with everything that somebody does. You're going to disagree with people sometimes and that's okay. Disagreement doesn't mean that you've disrespected somebody and disagreement doesn't mean a fight until death until you get this person to agree with you. Instead, as the mind becomes more and more awake and you don't have that central desire and you don't have ill will, you understand that disagreement's gonna occur and you just accept it and you just know that that's going to occur and you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And part of all beings being well is ensuring that you're not being aggressive and bitter and hostile to people. If you're being bitter, hostile, and aggressive to people, then that's what's going to come back to you. And this is going to need to be essentially uprooted out of the mind or obliterated at the stump. Another way to think about this is this wild bush of ill will growing in the mind. And you need to trim it back and trim it back and trim it back all the way until you get to the stump. And then you need to uproot this ill will out of the mind so that it no longer grows back again. And that's how you get to this permanent state of peacefulness and joy where you've uprooted these fetters and it's no longer going to grow back again because you've uprooted it out of the mind. It's no longer subject to future arising. So here with ill will, loving kindness is very, very important to practice as part of your meditation practicing that in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions. And then anytime you see ill will or even the slightest little bit of dislike arise in the mind, cut that off and let it go. As you have awareness of the bodily sensations, you'll be able to catch that sooner and sooner where it won't become a feeling in the mind. So you're going to need to understand the four foundations of mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path in order to fully eradicate ill will. And that's why the Eightfold Path is a foundational teaching that you need to fully understand and be practicing in order to get to this point where the mind is uprooted ill will. You wouldn't be able to uproot ill will if you don't have those foundational teachings of the Eightfold Path. So what questions do you guys have on this fetter? Yes, sir. Um on YouTube, Pico asks, how to know if we have permanently eliminated a fetter? The way that you know is that you won't see discontentedness arising associated with that fetter. So each individual fetter, if you understand what they are and what type of discontentedness is going to arise because of it, then you'll know when you've actually uprooted it. So for example, with personal existence view, if you understand that it's wanting agreeable contact related to the self-image and self-identity. So if somebody says something like, oh, David, you wear white clothes, you look so handsome, it brings out 
the color of your eyes. If you feel these pleasant feelings coming into the mind, like, oh, wow, I feel so great. I feel so wonderful because somebody said that I look handsome in these white clothes, then that's a conditioned pleasant feeling because it's only a matter of time before somebody says, why are you wearing those white clothes? They look so stupid. You know, you look like a marshmallow man. You know, you're going to get dirty when you're working in the yard. Why would you ever wear white clothes every day? Right. And then if the mind experiences you know, sadness or frustration or irritation because of this, then you know that there's still personal existence view in the mind. Or if you get chocolate ice cream over your shirt and you feel embarrassed, this embarrassment is because of the personal existence view. So when you start understanding what each individual fetter is arising in terms of discontentedness, then you'll know that has been eliminated when that discontentedness no longer exists. So like doubt, you'll get to the point where you have no doubt. You'll know in your mind, I know these teachings are leading to enlightenment because I can see enlightenment coming through more and more. I'm getting more experiences of getting glimpses of enlightenment. With wrong behavior, you can look very clearly at the Eightfold Path, exactly what the Buddha teaches around moral conduct, and you'll know you're not practicing those anymore. And with wrong observances, you'll know that you're not doing any rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship, and your mind knows clearly that these don't lead to enlightenment. With central desire, you'll see that the mind won't be longing and yearning with craving through the sense spaces any longer, that it can be peaceful and joyful. It can be content with satisfying its needs rather than chasing its wants. And then here with ill will, you'll know that there's no longer any ill will, no anger or aggression or bitterness, resentment, even the slightest little dislike towards an individual. It won't be there anymore. The mind will just be cheerful and have an active goodwill towards all beings. You'll be interested in seeing all beings be well, and you'll be able to practice that in daily life through your intention, speech, and actions. And these other fetters that we're going to talk about in the higher fetters, it's the same thing. When you understand what those fetters are and what they look like when they're arising in the mind, then with mindfulness or awareness of mind, you won't see those fetters or those pollutions arise any longer in the mind. And this is where at different times, you might need to reach out to your teacher and ask and say, hey, I think I've eliminated ill will. Is there a way that you can help me discern this? And we can ask you a few questions based on our relationship with you and based on what we know about your life and based on things that you share with us to see if ill will is truly eliminated from the mind or not. And this is something you'll be interested to keep tabs on because you're going to need to know how to address all of these things as you're going forward. The Eightfold Path is giving you the generalized training of how to go forward so that anytime you see discontentedness arise, you know to cut that off and let that go. But this is understanding the 10 fetters is like going in with a surgical knife and surgically cutting out exactly what the problem is, where the Eightfold Path is giving you this generalized core teaching of how to practice on a daily basis. But here, you need to go in with detail and surgically remove each one of these things because all the things that I'm sharing with you that are the solutions to eliminating these, these are already things that I've actually taught as part of the Eightfold Path. But now I'm just showing you how those things that you've already learned are actually working to eliminate each one of these fetters. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Also, 
What about irritation or annoyance toward a situation, not a living being, not a person or any other type of living being? Is this still considered to be a better ill will or is this something else, sir? This is central desire. So if you have a desire for a certain situation to go a certain way and it doesn't go that way and you get frustrated, this is because the mind is having the central desire. But now if the mind attributes that to a person and now the mind has ill will towards that person or dislike towards that person, that's the actual ill will. Yes, understood. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. That's why these two are four and five and they get thinned and ultimately eliminated essentially hand in hand. This is the craving and anger part of the three unwholesome roots. Okay. Yes, understood. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it appears there are no other questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now let's move into the higher fetters because at this point, somebody having eliminated the five lower fetters would be experiencing the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner. And if they die in that stage of enlightenment, they're gonna be reborn in the heavenly realm. And as I've discussed in other classes, in the heavenly realm, these beings are oftentimes complacent because they're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings. And in that third stage of enlightenment, a practitioner can become complacent because they're only experiencing very infrequent discontentedness, maybe once every three to six months, and it's not very intense. It's very minimal at this point. So if you're experiencing even the slightest little ickiness, it's important that you continue to go forward. You continue to practice. Don't allow the mind to become complacent at all because if you become complacent and you stall out at that third stage of enlightenment, then the mind isn't yet in the fourth stage of enlightenment, experiencing enlightenment itself as an otter hunt. It's only when you eliminate these five higher fetters in addition to these five lower fetters that now the mind is actually enlightened and experiencing enlightenment where there will no longer be any discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. So here, let's talk about fetters six and seven at the same time because they're very similar. Desire for form and desire for formless. This is where the mind has a craving, a desire to exist in either the form realm of animal or human, or in the formless realm of hell, afflicted spirits, or heaven. The form realms are realms where there's physical form. So the animal and human realm, there's physical form. In the formless realms of hell, afflicted spirits, and heaven, those beings are still in existence in the cycle of rebirth, but there's no physical form. That's why we call them the formless realms. And if the mind has craving or desire to be reborn, then it's not yet enlightened. So if there's this desire to come back as a human or come back as an animal or be reborn in heaven and live there for eternity, or some people have desire to be reborn in hell or afflicted spirits, if these exist in the mind, then it hasn't yet eliminated the desire for existence. And there's still this desire for form and formless. These pollutions are in the mind. The mind is still holding on to this world. It's still holding on to this cycle of rebirth, wanting to be in existence. It's clinging to what's called the five aggregates. 
the five aggregates are something that you will typically learn after you've progressed to a certain point and you're studying the words of the Buddha and you start understanding his description of what a living being is. He gives these five aggregates. What a living being is, is they're going to have these five aggregates or these five collections. There's form, feeling, there's perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. What form is, is the actual form. Then there's the feelings that are coming into the mind. Then there's perceptions. This is the way things seem to be, kind of like an assumption. It's the way things seem to be in the world, and they may be true, it may be false. And then volitional formations are the choices and decisions that a being will make. And then there's a consciousness or a mind. So you being a human being, you can look at this and you can see, yeah, I have physical form, there's feelings, there's certain perceptions of how things seem to be in the world, certain views, certain opinions. Then there's certain volitional formations, which are choices and decisions that you make. And then there's a consciousness or there's a mind. This is how the Buddha described what a living being is. Even a squirrel has five aggregates. Even an ant has five aggregates. Even a bird has five aggregates. So these are living beings that have the five aggregates. But you can also look at something like a tree and you can see that it doesn't have the five aggregates. It has physical form, but it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have perceptions about the way things seem to be in the world. It doesn't make choices and decisions. It can't choose to uproot itself, walk down the street and replant itself. And the reason why it can't do that is because it doesn't have a consciousness. It doesn't have a mind. So this is the way that you can discover and discern what is a living being, that it's going to have these five aggregates, form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and it's going to have a consciousness or a mind. So for a being to have desire for form or desire for formless, there's going to be a certain amount of clinging to these five aggregates. And you need to train the mind to let go and no longer hold on to these five aggregates wanting to exist in either the form realms or the formless realms. And by the time you get to the point where you've eliminated desire for form and desire for formless, you will no longer crave to be in this world, so therefore there won't be a fear of death. Oftentimes we have fear of death because we don't know what's next, or we've done certain unwholesome things in the world and we fear what might be coming next. Or we have central desire and we're holding on to relationships, we're holding on to possessions, we're holding on to so many things because of central desire that there's this fear of letting go and what might come next. So in order to eliminate this fear of death and this desire to be in existence, you can reflect on your own death. What this is, is you can sit somewhere quietly, you can close your eyes and you can convince the mind that you've actually died, that this being who you are now has died and that perhaps a police officer or a nurse or a doctor or somebody has informed your family and now you're like a fly on the wall observing what's happening from there. 
there's going to be a funeral perhaps certain events that are happening because of your death and you can kind of observe that and kind of convince your mind that this being has died and now come to confront the impermanence of your own life because you can't escape death it's going to happen every single one of us because we were born we're going to die there's no such thing as eternal life that if you're in this existence as a human being you're going to experience death so you can allow that to sneak up on you and catch you by surprise or you can reflect on your death over multiple sessions convince the mind that you've died maybe you become sad maybe you grieve maybe you feel a certain amount of misery or frustration but each time you do one of these sessions the feelings get less and less and less to the point where eventually you do this and you're completely at peace with death and you just know that that's what's going to occur you're no longer repulsed by this you're no longer pushing it away you're no longer conflicted with your own death you get to the point where you're completely comfortable knowing that that's what is going to occur and now you're no longer fearful of it it's just a matter of when it comes and how it's going to come but as long as you have this fear of death the mind is oftentimes craving to be in existence so you're not interested in craving existence but you're also not interested in craving non-existence either non-existence would be like being interested in suicide for example so either side of this the mind's going to be discontent if you're craving existence then the mind's going to be fearful of death and if you're craving non-existence then you're going to be discontent with existing in the world so the mind needs to get to a point where it's eradicated desire for form and desire for formless where it's no longer clinging to the five aggregates of form feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness and it can just be content and joyful and peaceful in the present moment knowing that there is this existence and it will come to an end and when it does that's fine it's all impermanence so you can get to a point where you're in meditation or you're in daily life and if death comes to you in that instant you're completely okay with that that you wouldn't be disgruntled, you wouldn't be disappointed, you wouldn't be missing people, you wouldn't be holding on and grasping for certain possessions, but if death came to you in an instant, you would just be completely okay with that. You're not aspiring to die, that would be craving for non-existence, but you're not craving and aspiring to live either. You're just choosing to make wise decisions about your life without this fear of what may or may not come next and then this is further liberating for you that when you walk down the street or you're driving a car or you're in an airplane or something like this you're no longer fearing death that you just know that it will occur you're going to make wise decisions to ensure that it comes as late as possible you're going to make wise decisions about your health and who you associate with, places that you go, what kind of safety equipment you wear in any particular situation. You'll make those wise decisions to ensure your death is as far down the road as possible, but you won't fear death. You'll just know that it's part of this human experience and now you can be peaceful and joyful in the present moment, no longer fearing things that are happening around you or what's going on in the world. What questions do you guys have on these two fetters? Um, yes, sir. 
I have a few questions, actually. One of them I can't really seem to comprehend. What are some reasons that someone might want to be reborn in the hell realm? Just because that doesn't seem like something that someone, anyone would aspire to. Yeah, there's certain people who are into worship of Satan and satanic uh, worshiping and things like this, and they have a desire to be reborn in the hell realm. So those individuals might have that craving, and in order to get to enlightenment, they would need to be able to let that go. Okay. All right. I think I understand that now, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then also, the five aggregates with afflicted spirits, do afflicted spirits have form, or is it just their own perception that they have physical form that's kind of counting as this this physical form. Yeah, so in the hell afflicted spirits in heavenly realm, they don't have physical form. So they're not what we would call a living being. They are in existence, but they're not a living being. So like we can't kill an afflicted spirit. We can't kill a heavenly being. We can't kill a being in hell. These beings don't have any physical form, so they can't be killed. So when the Buddha describes a living being, he talks about one that has the five aggregates, which is in the animal realm and human realm. And this relates to the first precept where he talks about living compassionately for all living beings. We need to have compassion for all beings, and the Buddha talks about this as well, but specifically that particular precept of not killing any living beings, he's referring to animals and humans because we can't actually kill a hell-afflicted spirit or heavenly being because they don't have physical form. So they are in existence, but they're not considered to be a living being as having the five aggregates. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then... You spoke about how we can train the mind to not fear death and not cling to existence. Is there a way that we can train the mind to not cling to the five aggregates themselves? To not cling to the five aggregates themselves? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is how you do it, by reflecting on your own death and realizing that these five aggregates are impermanent, and you confront it through reflecting on your own death. And as you do that each time, the mind might become discontent. And that actually shows you that what you're doing is actually working. Sometimes when people feel those uncomfortable feelings, they might shy away from an activity like this and think that they're either doing it wrong or they might be uncomfortable with it so they don't want to do it again. But the thing is, is that they're going to confront their death at some point because they have to die. This activity of reflecting on your death is confronting death on your terms rather than allowing death to sneak up on us. And then we have to deal with it when death decides it's time to deal with it, essentially. Instead, we can deal with it on our terms, that when our mind's in a certain space, we know that we don't have to work for a few days or something, or we're not going to be maybe seeing somebody for a few hours or a day or two. We can confront our own death through reflecting on it and this will train the mind to let go of these five aggregates and no longer hold on to them craving for them to be permanent yes thank you sir mm -hmm. and then also on um, youtube Epico asks and i think this is kind of uh, for a uh, personal existence view and this fetter desire form and desire formlessness if there is no self then what is reborn? Yeah, so the 
understanding of no personal existence view and that there is no self, there is a physical body here. There is a mind here. And when these two coming together, we call this a person. So there is a person here. There is a human being talking to you. But it's essentially a consciousness or a mind talking through a physical body, using the physical body to articulate certain sounds that you can understand. And then those sounds are going into your ears and now your consciousness, your mind is understanding it and comprehending it. So when we say there is no self, what we're saying is that this physical body nor this mind is who you are as a person. But there is a physical body and there is a mind. And when we talk about rebirth, People have translated this word samsara that was in the original source teachings of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. They translate it as the cycle of rebirth, as if there is something being reborn. But in reality, a more accurate translation of this would be the cycle of new existence. Because this being who you are now, this physical body and mind, when it reaches death, if there's going to be rebirth, the new being is a completely new being. There actually isn't anything being reborn. There's a new consciousness. So you can think of it like right now, this is cardboard box A. And cardboard box A has a certain shape, has a certain color, has a certain texture. And once cardboard box A is done and over with and disintegrates, the contents of cardboard box A are going to now be transferred into cardboard box B. But cardboard box B is a different shape, different color, different texture. It's a completely new cardboard box. So it's a completely new existence from one existence to another. But the cravings and residual memories of one being gets transferred to the other being. And this is why some beings can observe their past lives because they have residual memories from their past lives. So there's nothing that's actually being reborn. But rebirth, or what I refer to as the cycle of new existence, it's completely in line with the universal truth of non-self because there actually isn't anything that is being reborn. So there is no permanent self. There is no self. There's just a physical body and a mind. These two things have come together for this existence. When this existence is done and over with, the body returns back, the mind disintegrates, and what's left is then transferred into a new being, in this new consciousness, this new mind. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so now we'll go to the eighth fetter, which is described as conceit. Personal existence view in this fetter of conceit, we refer to that nowadays as the ego. During the lifetime of the Buddha, this word ego didn't exist. So he talked about this as personal existence view and conceit. And it actually helps you to understand them separately because as you understand them separately, this will help you to more readily target each one and address each one. But just understand that when we talk about ego today, we're actually describing personal existence view and conceit together. Typically, when we talk about ego, we tend to think about it in terms of what I'm going to describe to you is conceit, but it's helpful for you to understand that it also includes this personal existence view. And once personal existence view and conceit is completely eliminated from the mind, this is the ego being completely dissolved and eliminated, which would need to occur in order to get to enlightenment.
So the conceit is where the mind has this arrogance, this pride, the judging, the measuring and comparing as being superior or inferior to others. The mind wants to put itself above others and look down on people. And in this case, you're going to have difficulties in your relationships because as that ego or that arrogance comes out, the mind's going to say things and do things that other people aren't going to appreciate. And then you're going to find that you have difficulties in relationships. And the same thing is when you put yourself below people and you look up to people with such awe, you're going to find that you're uncalm. The mind is unsteady. And now you have difficulties functioning in those relationships too. Where this is all coming from is this is coming from our animal existences that in the past we've all had countless animal existences and rebirths in these other realms as well. And in those animal existences, we needed to have a pecking order. We needed to have a certain alpha male and female in our wolf pack, for example, to teach us how to hunt and where food was and how to conduct ourselves as wolves. And when we were in a herd of elephants, we needed the matriarch of our herd to show us the migration routes and show us where water is and show us where food is and show us how to care for each other and things like this. We needed to know who's above us and who's below us. But while that was helpful to us in the animal realm and it, it ensured our survival, here in the human realm, we maintain this conceit of wanting to know who we're above and who we're below. So there's this judging or this measuring and comparing that you might walk into a room or you might forge relationships with people and now you're measuring and comparing and you're judging them. Try to determine if you're above people or below people. And then when the mind feels like it's above people, it's going to talk to those people and relate to those people in one way with arrogance. And then when you feel like you're below people, you're going to relate to them in one way and perhaps constantly trying to get above them, perhaps, depending on how strong the conceit is. And as long as the mind is doing this, then it's going to find it very difficult to reside with peacefulness and joy in all relationships because the mind is constantly obsessed with trying to figure out who's above and who's below. In fact, the mind might create these false enemies thinking that other people are out to get you and you're trying to put yourself above them or below them in any one situation. And if you're talking down to certain people and you're looking down on people and you're talking in one way and acting in one way, but then when you look up to people, you're functioning in another way, it's going to be very challenging for you to get to this permanent mental state where you're permanently practicing something like right intention, right speech, and right action. Because you have a certain way that you treat people who are below you in a certain way that you treat people above you. And the mind's going to have to be constantly switching between this. And it taxes the mind. It burdens the mind with having to constantly judge and measure and compare who's above and who's below. So when you get rid of this conceit or this arrogance, this pride, this judging and measuring and comparing everybody, the mind can be more at ease. And the way that you do that are things that I've taught in chapter 16 of volume one. I actually go through and I share in a very detailed sense exactly what one needs to do in order to eliminate conceit. And here they are. 
I talk about saying thank you to people often because oftentimes when the mind has conceit and arrogance, it thinks that I deserve these things. All these things are mine because I deserve them. I have this arrogance or this pride. So just by saying things like thank you often, right? Sleeping in a low position on the floor rather than an elevated luxurious bed. You should look for a sleeping arrangement where you're sleeping at knee height or below. Perhaps you just put your mattress on the floor. And by sleeping low, going down into bed and getting out of bed, you're training the mind to be humble and down to earth. Do tasks that you feel are beneath you. If you feel like certain things are beneath you, like maybe washing dishes or vacuuming or sweeping or washing clothes or ironing clothes or I don't know, any kind of number of things, maybe sweeping the street or sweeping your driveway, things like this, or cleaning up feces or urine or things like this. This is a way to train the mind to be humble, that you're willing to do any task whatsoever. You don't see anything as being beneath you. Oftentimes when the mind is arrogant, it feels like it wants to to teach everybody what you know. It wants everybody to know the same things that you know because the mind thinks it's so wise and so smart and so intelligent. So one of the ways to train the mind to be humble is to listen when other people are teaching. And as you listen, listen without any interest to teach that person anything. So if you're attending classes here regularly, you're doing that on a regular basis. But maybe in other parts of your life, you need to be doing that as well, where you just listen to other people teach, understanding their wisdom. You don't necessarily agree or disagree with it, but you're not interested in projecting your teaching onto them, but instead you're just choosing to listen and understand. You can wash people's feet. This is something that they do here in Thailand. Even Jesus Christ taught this as well. We don't have in the Bible why Jesus taught to wash people's feet, but I can share with you the reason why he did that is to teach you to be humble. By you washing people's feet, it actually helps the mind to become humble. And here in Thailand, they do this at Mother's Day, Father's Day, New Year's, on your birthday, things like this, on certain holidays, or even just any time during the year. You can wash the feet of your parents, of your siblings, of your grandparents, of your life partner, things like this. And this teaches the mind to get down on the floor, wash their hands, wash their feet, and it promotes a certain amount of humbleness in the mind. It can also help those individuals experience your love too because we say i love you oftentimes in our speech but it's our actions that really communicate that best so by holding someone's foot in your hand gradually washing it and rinsing it and drying it off in a nice humble peaceful way this can be a way to communicate love while also you're cultivating humbleness in your own mind So there's additional things I'm going to share with you here, but I would like to share with you while we're here talking about this is that it's not just one of these things that is actually going to eliminate conceit. It's a collection of all of these things. So by you choosing to practice these different things, it will actually help you to eliminate conceit. It's not that you should just do one thing, but you should incorporate more and more of these as I talk about them in our class today. 
Another thing that you can do is you can show respect and gratitude to people with what's called a why. Here in Thai culture, we call this a why, where you bring your hands together palm to palm, you bring your hands up to your face, and then you bow your head. This is a way of showing respect and gratitude to people. Even if this isn't a typical part of your culture, there's more and more people that are starting to integrate this into their culture because they understand it's a way of showing respect and gratitude to others. And it's also a way for you to humble the mind by lowering your head. Now, if you're going to show respect and gratitude to people and you understand that this is a practice to cultivate humbleness in your own mind, you shouldn't have the expectation that other people are going to why you back. Because of the universal truth of impermanence, not everybody is going to why you back. So if you're choosing to incorporate this practice into your daily life where you're whying people on a regular basis, you shouldn't have the expectation that people are going to why you back and just know that there's going to be some people who aren't whying you back. And that doesn't mean they're being disrespectful to you. For whatever reason, they're choosing not to why you back. They're just choosing not to why you back. You shouldn't be choosing to practice anything in the Buddhist teachings because you're expecting somebody else to do something to you or for you. Instead, you should be practicing these things because you know it's the good, right, wholesome way, the wise way to conduct yourself in life. So when you're whying people, just understand that some people aren't going to why you back. A common occurrence that you'll see is that oftentimes ordained practitioners aren't going to why household practitioners back. Unfortunately, at some point along the line, somebody introduced this into the ordained way that some ordained practitioners think that they're above household practitioners and that they shouldn't why or show respect to household practitioners. I disagree with this, but that's their practice. It doesn't affect me. Instead, I choose to respect and have gratitude for all beings. So I'm going to why all beings, including children, everybody, I'm going to show respect and show gratitude to. And if you choose to do that, understand that it's part of your practice to cultivate humbleness in your mind. Show generosity, loving kindness, and compassion to all beings, especially those that you don't associate well with. Because if there's ill will in the mind, you might not associate well with certain people. And then there might be this arrogance that comes into the mind. So by you practicing generosity, loving kindness, and compassion, this can help humble the mind. As you observe that there's any judgment or measuring and comparing as being superior or inferior to others, you need to cut that off and let it go. Don't allow the mind to do that. Where you're judging other people, even if you're not talking to them, you're just looking at somebody, you're just thinking about somebody. If you see any kind of judgment where you're measuring and comparing and putting yourself either above or below people, cut that off and realize that that's an unwholesome quality and arise humbleness. Be kind and gentle around all beings because it's the right thing to do, not because you expect anything back in return, but just because you know that it's the right thing to do. You can ask questions and advice of other people that have learned certain things in life without you being interested in proving anything. Oftentimes when we're around people and we have conceit, you might be listening to somebody teach something or you might be listening to somebody sharing something about their life and you're listening so that when they're done speaking, you can come up over the top of them and tell them how much better you are or 
maybe they've won some certain award and now you come up over the top of them and tell them how you won an award that's even better than that. So rather than listening in order to react in this situation and come up over the top of people, just listen to people, share the things that they've learned in life without any interest in trying to prove anything to them, but just listening. This can really help to cultivate a humble mind. If you've ever been to a party before in some cultures, sometimes you show up to a party and it's kind of like, hi, how are you? You know, what do you do? Oh, you're a lawyer. Okay, well, I'm an airplane pilot. You know, like people want to go up over the top of each other or right away there's this measuring and comparing that happens in social situations because people want to determine who's above them and who's below them. And where you see your mind being interested to do this, cut that off and let it go. If other people are choosing to do this, that's on them. That's what their practice is. But in order for you to eliminate conceit, you're going to need to observe that when your mind is trying to do those kinds of things and then cut it off and let it go so that it no longer arises in the mind. You can do things like helping people without any expectation of anything in return or any kind of positive benefit for you. You can seek guidance from a teacher and get help on this path to enlightenment. There's a lot of people in the world that think that they can get to enlightenment by themselves without the guidance of a teacher. Only a Buddha would be able to do this. And the last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. So every single person who's interested in getting to enlightenment is going to need a teacher in order to help them get to enlightenment. But there's a large number of people in the world that don't realize that's the case because there's this conceit in the mind thinking that they can do this on their own just like the Buddha did. But a Buddha has a unique quality of mind that other beings don't have that allows them to actually get to enlightenment by themselves, is that they can remember countless details about this life and all of their past lives, and that wisdom accumulates to the point where they can get to enlightenment by themselves in this last life of theirs. But other beings don't have that same ability. So by you choosing to seek guidance from a teacher in order to move towards enlightenment, this is a way to admit to yourself that you don't know everything that there is in the world and you need help. Just choosing to seek guidance from a teacher on the path to enlightenment is a way to help you eliminate some of the conceit in the mind. Wherever you observe that the mind is trying to project this arrogance or pride or this measuring and comparing, this judgment, be sure to cut that off and let it go. And where needed, consult and seek guidance from a teacher over multiple sessions because this is going to help you to understand this fetter more and more deeply and receive instruction on how to actually eliminate it. What questions do you guys have on this fetter? Yes, sir. I think you, you touched on this, but um, on YouTube, Pepico asks, how can we deal with talking to arrogant or toxic people like when he or she is your boss? Yeah, the first thing that I would do is don't judge other people as being arrogant and don't judge them as being toxic people. This is a label that the arrogance in your mind, the conceit in your mind wants to place on somebody else, like they're arrogant or they're toxic, right? This is 
the measuring and comparing. This is the judging. Instead, understand your practice and understand that you're interested in being humble. And if other people choose to be arrogant and they choose to be unwholesome in any way, then that's their choice. And you just need to navigate that through you practicing the Eightfold Path. Each situation is different, but as long as you go around thinking that others are arrogant or others are toxic, then this is your conceit, this is your judging and measuring and comparing what you're trying to get rid of. And if somebody thinks about another person as toxic, not only is there this judging and measuring and comparing in the mind, but this is also part of wrong view. Because if we think that other people are toxic and that's causing me problems, then this is part of wrong view. So by getting rid of those labels and just viewing human beings as human beings and they're struggling and having difficulties in life, just like you are, if you're unenlightened, you're still having struggles and difficulties, then just continue to be humble, just continue to practice all the steps of the Eightfold Path, including right intention, right speech, and right action, but be sure you eliminate this thought that other people are toxic because that's going to promote wrong view in your mind. Yes, thank you, sir. And then also, when it comes to washing feet, does this have to be done as part of a ceremony to have this effect on mind, or can it be done as sort of an everyday task? I ask this because at work, we regularly are giving showers to residents and one of the things that we do is we wash their feet because they can't lean over and wash their own feet. So is this part of training the mind towards this, sir? Yes, this is training the mind towards eliminating conceits, is being willing to wash people's feet. There's no ceremony involved. Essentially on Mother's Day, Father's Day, New Year's, your birthday, you might, as you're visiting with your parents or grandparents or what have you, you might you know, bring a bowl of water, sit them on a chair or a sofa, do everything the way that I teach with, you know, there can be flowers, there can be scents, there can be towels to dry their feet. And this is a way that you might do this with your relatives. But you can also do this with people that you don't know. And this is actually even more impactful to the mind. My wife used to have a massage business here in Chiang Mai. And when there was a time where there was like nine people who came from America and I washed all their feet before they got a massage. This is really impactful for the mind that you can humble your mind to the point where you're willing to wash someone else's feet, not just your mom, not just your dad, not your grandparents, your brothers and sisters, people that have known you for a long time, but even somebody that is unrelated to you, someone that you don't know very well, you're willing to wash their feet. This can be very impactful to the mind. Okay, wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, there are no other questions about this fetter at this time, sir. Okay, so let's talk about the ninth fetter, which is restlessness. Restlessness is how the mind is confused, distracted, worried, have anxiety or anxious. It's kind of this restless state of mind, the opposite of singleness of mind. As part of the Eightfold Path and right concentration, you learn about singleness of mind where you're focused on just one single object. You're just doing one task at a time. You're not watching TV and eating food and talking on the phone. You're just watching TV or you're just talking on the phone or you're just eating. You're just doing one thing at a time. 
if you've been training your mind to rapidly cycle between all of these things at one time, then you might observe that there's this restlessness in the mind and where the mind can become anxious or worried. It can even become confused because it's rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing. So this is a pollution. This is a fetter. This is a defilement. This is a taint. This is going to hinder the mind from experiencing the peace calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy because it's got this overactivity, this restlessness in the mind. And you'll oftentimes see this come out in the body. If somebody's bobbing their knee or they're tapping on a surface, there's some kind of repetitive movement in the body. This is actually coming from the mind. If the mind is overactive, then the body is going to show that because the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. So the employee is going to be overactive. You're going to see tapping of fingers, tapping of foot, tapping of the knee, various things like this. So you might observe that about yourself that you have this overactivity in the body and it's coming from the mind. Or you might just observe it in the mind that there's this anxiousness, this restless state of mind. And an enlightened being will have purged this from the mind. They will be completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing this overactivity. They'll be able to practice singleness of mind in all situations that they're experiencing. They're not going to be driving and talking on the phone, for example, right? This is where we get into a lot of difficulties if you choose to do that. And this is why some people unfortunately have met with death as a result of driving and talking on the phone because their mind isn't designed to do two things at one time. It needs to just do one thing at a time. And the longer that you allow this pollution in the mind, it's just going to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. So by training on right concentration to do just one thing at a time, you would then practice breathing mindfulness meditation in generosity to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. This is what's actually causing the mind to be overactive is because the mind is longing and yearning. You want to drive somewhere and get somewhere and you want to talk on the phone as well. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're lonely in the car by yourself because of craving, desire, attachment. You can't solve the boredom and loneliness by talking on the phone. There might be a temporary period where you're not bored and lonely, but the boredom and loneliness is going to come back because of the craving, desire, attachment that's in the mind. So it's only when you eliminate the craving, desire, attachments with breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity that then you'll see that the mind won't have this longing and yearning for certain things to occur that it can then reside peaceful and calm and serene and content. Where you observe that the mind is overactive and it has anxiety, then you would like to arise equanimity. This is part of the Brahma Viharas that are taught in Volume 1, Chapter 14. This is where you develop mental calmness, composure, evenness of temper, especially in difficult situations, treating everyone impartially. So where you observe that the mind is overactive, you can arise this equanimity where you calm the mind down, you bring some more tranquility to the mind, especially in difficult situations. So if you're encountering some news or you're encountering some situation where it would typically be difficult, right away you should trigger in the mind equanimity 
calmness, composure, evenness of temper. And by arising this in the mind, then you'll be able to eliminate the restlessness because equanimity is the exact opposite of restlessness. More and more as the mind experiences and arises this equanimity, you'll eliminate any kind of restlessness. But you also need to stay focused on the breathing mindfulness meditation, the generosity, and practicing singleness of mind all throughout your day. If you're only practicing meditation, focusing on the breath, but then for all the other 23 and a half hours of your day, however many hours you're awake, if you're rapidly cycling your mind from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, then it's going to experience anxiety. It's not going to be able to sit and just be restful. It's going to have this restlessness. So you would like to train the mind where it can just do one thing at a time in meditation focused on the breath, but then in your daily life as well, just doing one thing. What questions do you guys have on this fetter? It does not appear there are any questions about this fetter, sir. Okay. So now the very last fetter, which is the 10th fetter, this one is called ignorance. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he used a word that today is being translated as ignorance, but today we use this word ignorance in a derogatory way. So I don't suggest that you use this word or at least think about it in terms of a derogatory sense. The other words that we use for this is delusion or confusion or misunderstanding. I think the best way to represent this is called the unknowing of true reality. Because what ignorance is, or this fetter of ignorance, is the unknowing of true reality. It's the misunderstanding or misperception of how the world functions. For example, before you start off on this path, we might think that our anger is being caused by somebody else, that this person is making me angry, or you are frustrating me, or you are annoying me. That's because of our ignorance or unknowing of true reality, our misunderstanding and our misperception. Instead, this unknowing of true reality needs to be now transformed to wisdom. So we misunderstand why our mind is experiencing things like discontentedness, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. We don't know what we don't know. We misunderstand. We have this unknowing of true reality. So we might kill. We might steal. We might have sexual misconduct. We might lie. We might take substances that cause heedlessness. We might be bitter and hostile. We might be resentful. We might be jealous. We might have all these different feelings in the mind, and then our conduct becomes unskillful because we're unknowing of the natural law of karma, of cause and effect, we sometimes think in the unenlightened state, the more bitter and hostile and aggressive we are, this will prove to that person that they can't walk all over me, right? The mind is ignorant of the 10 fetters. The mind is ignorant of the natural law of gamma, the three unwholesome roots, all these different teachings. So the more that you transform this ignorance to wisdom, now the mind can gradually awaken. But this is the last fetter to actually leave from the mind. That's why it's the 10th fetter. The way that you transform this ignorance to wisdom is through investigating the teachings. The more that you investigate the teachings and you learn, reflect, to independently verify them and practice, you gain more and more wisdom acquiring this wisdom of the Buddhist teachings and this path to enlightenment and you gradually eradicate the ignorance in the mind. 
But this wisdom that you're arising in the mind, it's not just intellectual understanding. There is the intellectual understanding that you need through books and classes and things like this. But in order to fully accumulate and acquire wisdom and to fully eradicate ignorance, you need to move these intellectual understanding of the teachings into your practice. And when you're practicing the teachings, this is where ignorance is fully eliminated. So you can have a certain level of intellectual understanding of these teachings, but if you're not practicing the teachings, then there's still ignorance in the mind because you haven't yet learned how to actually practice them. So there's plenty of people in the world that might intellectually understand something like the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or other teachings, but they're not actually practicing them. So the ignorance doesn't actually get eliminated until somebody's actually practicing the teachings. That's when that pollution is fully eradicated. So if we're just intellectually learning, that's wonderful. That needs to occur in order to bring the teachings into the mind. But if you're understanding the five precepts, for example, and you understand what they are, but you're still killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, or taking substances that cause heedlessness, there's still ignorance in the mind because you're not yet practicing those five precepts. Or if you understand right speech intellectually, as the Buddha taught, right speech is part of the Eightfold Path, but you're not yet able to actually practice it, then there's still ignorance in the mind. So through investigating and examining the teachings to learn, reflect, and independently verify and practice, now you can eradicate the ignorance from the mind. As you do this, you're going to need to seek guidance from a teacher and seek consultation and understanding of what the teachings are and get help to move these teachings from intellectual learning into practice. And then as you fully develop your life practice to fully train the mind and actually get to enlightenment, when ignorance is completely eliminated from the mind, meaning now you fully understand the teachings, you fully are practicing them, now the mind is enlightened because ignorance is completely eliminated from the mind. You've now acquired what the Buddha calls final knowledge. Final knowledge is when you've cultivated all the wisdom on this path through learning, reflecting, and now you're practicing the teachings on a consistent, ongoing basis for one year, two years, three years. You don't see any discontentedness arising in the mind. In every single situation, you're loving and kind, compassionate. You have equanimity that has arisen in the mind, this calmness and composure. You're practicing things like right intention, right speech, right action effortlessly. It's no longer a struggle. It's no longer a challenge. It's no longer difficult for you to practice these teachings because they're so well soaked into the mind that it's just effortless for you to practice these teachings. And now all your relationships around you, you experience this blossoming of your personal and professional relationships. Anything that you experience in life, it's no longer a struggle. It's no longer difficult. It's maybe just a certain challenge that you need to apply wisdom to, but there's no longer struggles or difficulties in life because you have final knowledge. You no longer have ignorance in the mind. You have complete wisdom. And now you can address every situation that you experience in life without any discontentedness and through practicing these teachings with ease. What questions do you guys have on this fetter? 
Does not appear there are any questions on this better in particular, sir. Uh, there have been several questions not directly related to the fetters that have been asked on YouTube, if we have time okay. to go through those. Okay, sure. If there's any questions on the fetters, you guys are welcome to ask those. If there's other questions, you can ask those as well. I'm pleased to help you guys understand whatever questions you guys have. But uh, let's just be sure that any related to the fetters, that those get asked as well. But yeah, anything that you guys would like to ask about, you're welcome to ask about. Okay, thank you, sir. Um, on YouTube, Pepico asks, how about gambling? Why is that not in the five precepts for lay Buddhists, sir? So gambling is part of craving, desire, attachment. If somebody's interested to gamble or they want to gamble, this is the mind having craving for wealth. And it's not part of the five precepts because in the five precepts, the Buddha is talking about the five major things that cause the most significant harm. And by you practicing those five precepts, you're significantly reducing the harm that you cause in life. So therefore, there's less and less harm that's coming to you. But gambling is still part of the path to enlightenment. It's just not part of the five precepts. So when you're focused on the initial training of moral conduct, you're focused on those steps of moral conduct in the Eightfold Path and the five precepts. Ultimately, to get to enlightenment, you would need to eliminate the gambling as well, but it's just not part of those foundational teachings to kind of get started. But if you look at the resources that I share in volume one, even though the Buddha doesn't talk about it as part of right action in the Eightfold Path, I included it there so that people would know early on to eliminate gambling from their practice because it does cause significant harm. It's just not as significant as something like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying in the substances that cause heedlessness. Thank you, sir. Uh, Pepico also asks, can I ask an example of wisdom in Buddhism? What is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Yeah, so a lot of times the word knowledge and wisdom are translated the same. I tend to use the word wisdom, but some other people might use the word knowledge. So in a lot of respects, it's exactly the same thing. I don't necessarily see that as different. But the way that I describe wisdom is it's something that you've experienced through direct experience that you might have knowledge of something. If you would like to look at them as different, you can. You might have knowledge of something that you've read or that you've looked at or somebody taught you, but you don't have direct experience to observe it with your own direct experience. Now that becomes wisdom. So if you have ever stolen something, right, and you've gotten in trouble for that, and you know what that leads to. You have direct experience. You have wisdom that you know that stealing is unwholesome and it's going to lead to some harm. But when we're a child and we maybe haven't experienced something like that, maybe our parents have told us the knowledge of, hey, it's not wise to steal, but we don't quite you know, agree necessarily. We just have this awareness of people teaching not to steal. And because of our cravings and because of our ignorance, we still choose to steal. And now when we get direct experience, ah, now we have wisdom. Sometimes even there, we don't actually choose to change our conduct. But once you ultimately get to final knowledge or wisdom to the point where the mind fully understands intellectually and it's practicing, 
it will now have eradicated all that ignorance. And now the way that you accomplish that is through direct experience. Same thing with like something like meditation. You can hear me say that breathing mindfulness meditation arises mindfulness and concentration and it eliminates craving, desire, attachment. I know that to be 100% true and I have that as wisdom, but maybe you don't. Maybe it's just knowledge for you at this point of something that you're learning in class. But as you gradually practice it and you see that your mindfulness and concentration increases and your craving, desire, attachment decreases, then you'll have the wisdom that that is actually 100% the truth. Thank you, Spirit. Uh, Pipiko also asks, there are so many schools of Buddhism, so how do we know which one is the true one? Any school that is teaching or any teacher who is teaching based on the words of the Buddha, you should know that, okay, they're teaching with the words of the Buddha. They should have the discourses available for you. They should have resources available for you. They should be able to be willing to spend time with you to answer your questions as you need help and you seek guidance. And then when you're learning these teachings, you should be able to learn them. Then you should be able to reflect on them and independently verify. Any teachings that are being shared with you from the Buddha, you should be able to independently verify those to be true yourself. And then when you practice them, you should be able to see that the condition of your mind is gradually improving, that you see the peacefulness and the joy, the calmness coming into the mind more and more. So that would be an indication of a teacher or a school that is sharing the true teachings is they're basing what they're sharing based on the words of the Buddha. You can independently verify that those teachings are true and you can observe the quality of your mind is improving. Then some other things you can look at is that if people are teaching rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, which is a big one that you see out in the world, then you know 100% that this isn't the Buddhist teachings. Because as long as somebody's practicing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, that person isn't even in the first stage of enlightenment yet. Therefore, how could they actually lead you to enlightenment if they aren't even in the first stage of enlightenment themselves? And rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship isn't going to lead to an improved condition of mind because it doesn't lead to wisdom. It can't produce wisdom in the mind. So these are just some very basic things to look at, and that will help you. I can tell you with 100% certainty that I know that what I'm sharing will lead to enlightenment, but you need to be able to see that yourself. And the only way that you can do that is by investigating the teachings. And as you do and you practice them, you should see that the condition of your mind is gradually improving. And if it's not, you need to reach out to your teacher and ask for help, share with your teacher what's going on so that then they can help you to see more clearly of how to practice to improve the condition of the mind. Yes, thank you, sir. And then another student on YouTube, Thomas, asks, uh, showing people who are bullying respect is so complicated. My life experience proves that it is endless effort. For example, my wife who was ignoring me and bullying me for years how to handle this, sir? Yeah, so if someone's bullying, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily be overly respectful. It's important to not be disrespectful. If you're in a relationship like a life partner where you're being what you're describing as harassed and bullied, you need to evaluate whether 
you know, this is the best relationship for you. Whether you guys are going to work on this together to resolve this so that there isn't any hostility or bitterness or bullying in the relationship, or does it make sense to move on from the relationship and in the relationship? Because staying in a relationship where there's hostility or bitterness or bullying, this isn't going to promote an environment for you to actually get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So sometimes, like I mentioned, you may not have been in the class at the beginning when we were talking about some other things. I was mentioning how as you're on this path to enlightenment, there's going to be certain relationships that you decide to move on from and that you eliminate. There's going to be certain relationships that you work on and that you improve. And that person is also willing to do the work to improve the relationship. And then there's going to be new relationships that you forge as part of this path to enlightenment. And you're going to need to decide what type of relationship is this? Are you guys going to move on from each other, realizing it's not working? Or are you going to both work on your individual issues to resolve it so that there's no longer any bullying in the relationship. Because as long as you choose to continue to stay in that relationship without improvement, then it's going to continue to plague your experiences in life if you're with somebody as significant as a life partner where you've got these challenges going on. Thank you, sir. Um, And then Pepico asks, is non-self the same as no mind, sir? No, this isn't the same. There's no such thing as no mind. There absolutely is a mind. If anybody's teaching that there is no mind, this isn't true reality. Everything that the Buddha taught is about training the mind. No self is how you need to train the mind to understand that this body and this mind is not you. So for example, if you have this physical body in, like I mentioned before, if you get some kind of ice cream or spaghetti sauce or pizza sauce on your shirt and now you feel embarrassed, that's because you think that this body or this shirt is a representation of you and you're trying to look a certain way in the world and now the mind becomes discontent with embarrassment because you think that this sauce or this ice cream represents you. Or if you have a certain self-identity, like I am an American, or I am a police officer, or I am a lawyer. Now when somebody says something agreeable about all Americans, you might get these pleasant feelings. Or if you hear something disagreeable about Americans, somebody speaking in disparaging ways, you might feel discontent, you might feel sad or angry or frustrated. Or if you're doing a certain occupation and somebody says something agreeable or disagreeable, if you think I am a lawyer, now the mind falsely believes, mistakenly understands that I am a lawyer. So when somebody says something agreeable or kind or friendly about lawyers, well, they're talking about me because I am a lawyer. But now when they say something disparaging, and they're talking about lawyers. Well, I am a lawyer, so they're talking about me. So the mind can't be content and peaceful in the situation because you're identifying through the mind that this is who you are as a person. And then say you retire from being a police officer or a lawyer, now you feel lost in the world because 
part of you is missing. You've been doing this job for 20, 30, 40 years, and now you feel lost. You don't even know who you are in the world anymore because you've identified with this occupation as being who you are. And now that you're not doing that anymore, you might struggle in the world. So what the universal truth of non-self is, is this is the solution to personal existence view. That as long as the pollution of personal existence view is in the mind, thinking that this body or this mind is who you are, then it's going to continue to get shaken up in these kinds of situations and others. So when you train the mind to no longer have this false belief or this misperception or this misunderstanding that this body or this mind is you, now you can reside peaceful and joyful because you no longer see this body as being you. So if you think that this body is you and you have this youthfulness and then you get a wrinkle on your face, oh my goodness, I got a wrinkle. Oh, I got a gray hair. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm getting so old. I am getting old, right? And the mind might be shaken up by this. But if you realize that this body isn't you, that it is impermanent and this isn't who you are and you realize non-self in the mind and you've separated yourself you no longer see that this body is you and you realize non-self that there is no self here then when you see a wrinkle it's like yeah of course because the body's getting old yeah of course i got some gray hair here because uh yeah it's getting old um this is normal right this is just impermanence but it doesn't represent who i am as a person so as long as the mind falsely believes that this is who you are as a person when you get gray hair when you get a wrinkle you get a little fat around the stomach you get a little fat on the hips uh, you're going to start feeling really discontent about this because this is who you are as a person in this unenlightened mind with this pollution of personal existence view but when you eradicate that then you still care for the physical body you might still care for it and do certain things to maintain the health but your mind won't be discontent when you see a wrinkle or a gray hair or a little bit of fat or something like that thank you sir uh papico also asks is laughing a sign of pollution of the mind no, laughing isn't a sign of pollution of mind. An enlightened being can laugh. An unenlightened being might laugh. But it depends on how the mind experiences this. If the mind experiences a rush of pleasant feelings and then they're laughing as a result of these conditioned experiences, that's what an unenlightened mind is going to have. An unenlightened mind might even laugh at someone's despair at somebody's misfortune. An unenlightened mind might laugh at somebody's misfortune, but an enlightened mind may laugh, but they're not gonna laugh at somebody's misfortune, for example, or they're not gonna laugh at things based on conditioned pleasant feelings because they're no longer experiencing conditioned pleasant feelings. They might just laugh at a joke or something that's funny. So an enlightened being is still gonna have fun. They're gonna have a lot more fun than an unenlightened being, so this laughing isn't an indication of whether somebody's enlightened or unenlightened or if they have a polluted mind or an unpolluted mind. It's a matter of what the mind is laughing at that determines whether there's pollution in the mind or not. Thank you, sir. And then Papiko also asks, why shouldn't we seek rebirth in the heavenly realms? We live longer there, so have more time to achieve enlightenment. The heavenly realm isn't permanent. 
and beings in the heavenly realm are oftentimes very complacent. It is true that the lifespan there is longer, so they have a longer time to get to enlightenment, but because they're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, they oftentimes lack motivation and enthusiasm to get to enlightenment. Here in the human realm, we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So we tend to have built-in motivation, built-in enthusiasm to get to enlightenment because we're trying to get away from these painful feelings and these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. But in the heavenly realm, they only experience pleasant feelings. So oftentimes, beings in the heavenly realm are reborn down into other realms, including hell, animal, and afflicted spirit realm because they lack motivation and they have this complacency and because those beings are still stuck in the cycle of rebirth if they're going from heaven down into the lower realms now being in the lower realms it's like stuck like being in a prison you can still get out of those realms and we've all done that we've gotten out of those realms but it takes countless rebirths to get back to a human existence where you have the most opportunity to actually get to enlightenment because you have that built-in motivation to be able to get to enlightenment so being in the heavenly realm is not ideal it's not something anybody should aspire to do while you're in this human realm this is your best opportunity to learn and practice to get to enlightenment yes thank you sir and then it looks like the final question on here pepico asks i live in a place where i'm not sure that i'm going to pronounce this correctly amitabha buddha is popular may i have your comment on it is it in pali canon I have not seen that in the Pali Canon whatsoever. There's Gautama Buddha, who's depicted in the Pali Canon, and then there's discourses that have been attributed to the Buddha that he's talking about Buddhas in the past before him, and he also talks about a future Buddha, Buddha Maitreya. Here, Gautama Buddha, whether he actually talked about previous Buddhas or not, I'm not 100% sure, even though it's in the Pali Canon, because there's another place in the Pali Canon where he talks about him being the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment, unarisen before him. So there's a conflict. This is the only conflict that I've seen in the Pali Canon where there's some places where the Buddha is reported to have talked about previous Buddhas, but this more direct teaching from the Buddha where he talks about nobody else had discovered this path before him, this makes a whole lot more sense. Whether there was actually Buddhas in the past or not, it doesn't really matter. We know that Gautama Buddha surely existed, and it's his teachings that are still in existence today. And he talked about this future Buddha Maitreya that was going to arise as well. So those are the only indications of a Buddha that is mentioned in the Pali Canon. If there's people who are praying to a Buddha or asking a Buddha to come do something or invoke some kind of power on their behalf, this is a right ritual ceremony and worship. This is part of that ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So there's some places in the Buddhist world that think that they're invoking some kind of power from a Buddha to be able to come and do something for them in their life. This isn't actually true reality. This is part of that ignorance and part of those wrong observances. So what I would suggest that you do is deeply learn and practice these teachings, train your mind to cultivate this wisdom, and that's what's going to lead to your enlightenment. 
and all these other Buddhas, it doesn't really matter. Right now, you're learning with somebody who can help you and please to help you to awaken more and more to enlightenment and just stay focused on that. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, it does not appear there are any other questions at this time. Okay. Well, thank you all for joining. It's wonderful that you guys are dedicated and diligent to ask questions and get in depth with these teachings. And even here on Christmas Day, for some of you guys, I know that you might be celebrating Christmas. So thank you for prioritizing learning the teachings of the Buddha on a holiday. Next week on Sunday, it is New Year's Day. And I'm still going to be logging in and doing a live stream. I'm not actually going to be teaching anything specific. I'm going to be doing meditation with you guys next Sunday. We're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation together. And then I'm going to open up to any and all questions that you guys might have. So you're welcome to come together for a New Year's meditation. And then on this Wednesday, we're going to be doing meditation together as well. All of this is building up to on January 8th, which is two Sundays from now, we're going to be restarting the group learning program. And rather than restart that group learning program on New Year's Day, I decided to move that to January 8th. So if you would like to start this program from the very beginning, you can attend class or listen to the replay on that particular day, that class of January 8th is the very beginning of the group learning program. And we're going to be restarting the Pali Canon and English Study Group on January 28th, which is several Saturdays from now. In either of these programs, you can actually start at any time that you'd like, but some students like to start from the very beginning, and you're going to have that opportunity coming up for you in January, where you can start one or both of these programs in January, on January 8th or January 28th. So thank you all for your questions. Thank you for moderating moderators. I saw that you guys were kind of busy at the beginning of class. So thank you for all your efforts to help with that. And uh, I'll potentially, we'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very peaceful and joyful holiday season. And we'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.